Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. A reading from the book of Esther. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathok, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathok went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her and he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathok went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned The king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, 
but you and your family's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Many of you have probably heard some of the statistics of the decline of the Christian faith in our country. The Pew Research Center did a study in 2019 looking back at the last decade and the changing religious landscape, and they had, seen, they had found that there was a decline in those who uh, described themselves as Christian. From 2009 to 2019, it went from 77% to 65%, so there's a 12% drop. And for those who describe themselves as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular, what we sometimes refer to as nuns, uh, there was a rise from 2019, 26% to 2000, or excuse me, 2009, 17% in 2019, 26%, so a rise 9% in those 10 years. But basically what we see is that for a decade, that's a pretty big shift in the Christian landscape, and that was actually pre-pandemic, so we expect that those figures might be even more today. But it's easy for us to look around and see kind of a decline in those who are committed to the Christian faith. Uh, we see corrupt political leaders. We see an increase in addiction and abuse and homelessness and broken families. There's so much brokenness around us and things that seem contrary to God's desires and his design. And we can sometimes wonder, does God really care? You know, is he still doing things today? Just this morning, I was talking with someone before the service, and they had had a hard week, and she really honestly just said, sometimes I wonder, where are you, God? Uh, you know, we can look around us and see this kind of morally ambiguous culture and people who are spiritually confused, and we wonder, is God really doing anything? Is he still active today? And so today we're looking at this story in the book of Esther and the people in this story, some of them may have been asking those same kinds of questions. Is God here? Does he care? So let me give you a little bit of background to this story. And if you want to keep your Bible before you, if you have it or a Bible app, it might help you just to kind of follow along. It's 10 chapters is the book of Esther. And I'm going to just try to give us a brief overview of the story, but some background the story of Esther takes place in the 5th century BC. This is after the Jewish people had been exiled. So we're in this series, Sinners and Saints. The last few weeks, we've been talking about some of the early characters in the Old Testament, how God blessed Abraham with many descendants and chose them to be his people. Uh, Isaac, and we talked about Jacob, were leaders of God's people, and God eventually led them out of slavery in Egypt under the guidance of Moses. 
and then brought them to the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, which is where we saw how Rahab helped them. And, and as time goes on, the Old Testament tells us the story of how God's people continually turn away from God. They're disobedient to him and they break the covenant with him, despite God's constant grace and guidance and provision for them. And eventually, as part of the consequences of this broken covenant, Jerusalem, which is where the temple was, it was the central place of worship for the Jews, Jerusalem was, had fallen to Babylon in about 586 BC. And the Jews were exiled from their land, they were taken to Babylon. Then in 539 BC, Babylon fell to Persia, and the Persian king issued an edict that allowed the Jews to return home. But many Jews did not return to Jerusalem. So they had, they had settled in Persia. It was their grandparents who had lived in Jerusalem, and so maybe they didn't feel that same connection to the land and, and probably knew that all that was really left there anyway was ruins. And they probably settled into the Persian culture and maybe even into their religion. So the book of Esther is written to tell us what happened to the Jews who had stayed in Persia after the exile. And this book is unlike any other book in the Bible in that it does not mention the name of God. And this is reflective of the spirit of the time about which it is written. So God was no longer central to the lives of most of the Jews who remained in Persia. The temple had been destroyed. The temple was the place where God's presence was, where he resided. And so this book sets up this question, is God still present? Does he care about those who had not returned to, to Jerusalem? You know, what's God doing with these people who maybe are even indifferent to him? So we're invited in this story to look for God behind the scenes. And we'll see that he is indeed still present and caring and active in the life of his people, even when they aren't acknowledging it or don't recognize it. So the story begins with Xerxes. Depending on your translation of the Bible, you may see the name Ahasuerus. That's the same person. It's the king of Persia. And Xerxes' reign began in 486 BC. So this was about 100 years after the fall of Jerusalem. And he's this kind of larger-than-life figure. His, his palace is described as very opulent and elaborate, and his kingdom is vast. And he's shown to be this kind of overindulgent, pleasure-seeking, arrogant king. Yet he'll also prove to be one who's pretty easily swayed by other people. And Xerxes has a couple banquets, and these feasts last for days. The first one's 180 days. The second one is seven days. And toward the end of these banquets, he's in a drunken state, and so he summons his wife, the queen Vashti, to come display her beauty to all the guests, and she refuses. And her defiance makes the king furious, and he removes her from her position as queen. So then in order to find a new queen, Xerxes essentially calls for a beauty pageant, but it's a year-long beauty pageant uh, where probably hundreds of young virgins were brought into the palace and underwent these extensive beauty treatments, and the one who most pleased the king would become, would become the new queen. It sounds kind of like a really bad reality TV show. But one of the young women who was brought to the palace was Esther. 
and she was being cared for by Mordecai, who's actually her cousin, but Esther's parents had died. Mordecai took her in and was caring for her. And Esther and Mordecai were Jewish, but Esther doesn't disclose that at the direction of Mordecai. She keeps her identity hidden. And Esther, uh, when she got to the palace, she quickly gains the favor of one of the king's attendants um, who is overseeing the women, and, and he kind of coaches her and prepares her for her visit with Xerxes. And so when it's her turn to go in with the king and to sleep with him, he was pleased with her, and she was made queen of Persia. Now after this, Mordecai was sitting at the palace gate, and he happened to overhear two palace guards conspiring to assassinate King Xerxes. So he told Esther, who then told the king that Mordecai heard this, and when it was found that those officials um, were indeed planning that, they were killed. So now we have to recognize already at this point how God is kind of working behind the scenes. So how Esther, a Jew, is brought to the palace, how she finds favor with the king's attendant who helps her, and how she pleases the king, and how Mordecai happens to overhear this plot and gains favor from the king by letting him know. And here's where we pick up with what Lynn read for us just a minute ago. Now, we'd expect, this is the beginning of chapter 3, we'd expect at this point, after what happened with Mordecai, that the king would be elevating him to a position of honor. But what we read is actually this guy, Haman, who kind of, kind of comes out of nowhere, is given this high position. But what we do know about Haman is that he's an Agagite. And so we need to understand some of the history in order to make sense of these events, some of the history between the Jews and the Agagites. So Mordecai is said to be part of the Jewish uh, tribe of Benjamin, who also, the first, Israel's first king, Saul, was also part of the tribe of Benjamin. Now this was centuries earlier. And God had directed Saul to overtake the Amalekites and completely destroy them. But in defeating the Amalekites, Saul chose to keep alive their king, Agag. And this was against God's directive, and we're seeing now, all this time later, that the line of Agag continues in Haman. So the enmity between these two people goes far and deep. And now we can understand why then when Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman out of respect for his position of honor, Haman not only wants to kill Mordecai, but his whole people, the Jews. So Haman comes up with a convincing argument that he presents to King Xerxes to request that the Jews be completely wiped out. And the time for the annihilation is chosen by lot. That's just uh, the tossing of the dice. It's by chance that it's determined that in the 12th month, all the Jews will be killed. So again, we see kind of this stuff happening by chance. Now, the edict calling for the annihilation of the Jews was sent under the name of Xerxes, the king. It goes out in the first month, so there's almost a year that will happen here between when the edict goes out and when this event will actually take place. So again, this is another way of seeing God's sovereignty in kind of this large gap of time. But the decree to kill the Jews is sent out on the 13th day of the first month. Now, why does that matter? Well, this was the day before the Jewish feast of Passover, and Passover is when the Jews recognized God's deliverance from them, for them out of Egypt. 
So the irony here is thick. This would have obviously called into question for the Jews, will God deliver us again? Even in our sin, even as exiled people in a broken covenant with God, will God save us? Now, so far in the story, Esther hasn't really been that significant of a character. She's a young woman. She's been following the lead of Mordecai and getting the help of the king's attendant. She's been kind of in the background. But in chapter 4, we hit a turning point. So it's a turning point in the story. It's a turning point for the Jewish people and a turning point in the life of Esther. When Mordecai hears of the decree that has gone out in the name of the king to kill the Jews, he's distraught. He's mourning, he puts on sackcloth and ashes, and he's wailing. All the Jews are mourning. But Esther doesn't even know what has happened yet, so she reaches out to Mordecai to find out what's wrong, and she hears how Haman had had issued the edict with the blessing of the king to wipe out the Jews in Persia. Mordecai tells her to go before the king and beg for mercy. But we see her fear and insecurity coming out here in her response. She basically says, do do you realize what you're asking me? Anyone who goes before the king without being summoned is going to die. You're presenting me with a death sentence. But Mordecai's response hits Esther to the heart. He says in chapter 4, verse 13, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. So basically he's saying, if you go to the king, yes, there's a chance you might die. But if you don't go to the king, you will certainly die. You know, Mordecai seems to be pretty sure that deliverance will come for the Jews from somewhere. And he's confident that God will rescue his people, even if it's not through Esther. So what he's saying to Esther is, if you don't go to the king, and the Jews actually do end up dying, then you'll probably be found out that you're a Jew, and you'll also be killed. If you don't go to the king, and deliverance does come from somewhere else, and the Jews actually don't end up dying, then you'll probably still be found out and be killed as a traitor. So he's saying, you can't hide behind your royal position. Don't forget who you are. Now in this series, we've been seeing how God works through messy people, right? So Mordecai is another one of these. On the one hand, he has this strong faith that God will bring deliverance, but he doesn't really know exactly how that's going to happen. He seems hopeful that it will happen through Esther, and it seems that maybe she's the only one who could make that happen because of her position. But he says, he says this, who knows, you know? <laughs> who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this? Who knows? Maybe you're the one God will use to deliver your people. And the verb there that you have come, it's actually uh, passive in the Hebrew, so you could say you have been brought to your royal position. Mordecai is emphasizing that Esther has been put here in this position. She didn't earn it. Her beauty was a gift given to her by God. The way she gained favor was God-ordained. It's by God's grace that she's in this position. She was chosen by God. 
Mordecai is calling her to remember her identity as one of God's people, remember that her status and her honor and her life are given by God, not an earthly king. Who knows? Now, maybe God actually wants her to be part of something bigger than herself. Maybe the king's drunken decisions were part of God's purposes. Maybe having Haman come into that place of honor instead of Mordecai is part of how God is working. Maybe putting an insecure and apprehensive woman in this position of queen is how he's going to bring about deliverance. Who knows? Who knows if that decision by your boss is part of what God is doing to direct your life? Who knows if that betrayal from your friend is a way God is inviting you to trust in him? Who knows if that difficult health report is part of God's greater purposes? Who knows if that child in your life is there because God wants you to be a positive influence on them? Who knows if God created your body the way it is and the gender it is for a reason? Who knows if God can use you and your insecurities and fears and failures to come alongside others and point them to God's grace? Who knows if God has you exactly where you are to be part of his great plan of redemption, even if it's beyond what you can imagine right now? Who knows? Mordecai is helping Esther to see that God has put her where she is for a reason. He's given her specific gifts and opportunities because he wants her to join in his sovereign purposes. And maybe God has done the same for you. But we have a choice. Esther had a choice. She could either be part of God's work of delivering his people, or she would most likely die. And we actually have this same choice. Now that might sound a little extreme, but hear me. As followers of Jesus, we're invited to be part of his great work of deliverance. We're invited to be part of showing and telling people the life one can have in Christ. And if we choose not to be part of it, at the least, we'll miss out on being part of something great. But at worst, we risk death. Because when we say no to God, no, I don't want to be part of your plan, we're saying that our plans, our desires, are more important than what God is doing. We're saying we care more about our status or recognition or acceptance that we get from somewhere else rather than what we get from God. And what this indicates is that our heart is submitted to another king. We're finding our identity and our worth in something else. What happens when we make that first decision to not align ourselves with God's will is that it can easily lead us further and further away from him until we don't, we're so far we don't even realize our fate, which is death. Esther had this choice. Did she more want the palace, the position, the approval of King Xerxes? Or did she want to respond to God's grace and take hold of her identity as a child of God, take hold of her worth and security and status given by God? This is a defining moment for her. She ends up responding to Mordecai's directive with courage and conviction. 
the compliant Esther of the first few chapters kind of falls away and she begins giving orders for this fast of the Jewish people. And, and this is kind of the closest we get to mention of God in the book. Fasting is always accompanied by prayer. So this indicates their humility and their dependence on God and crying out to him. It's in contrast to these extravagant feasts that we see happening in the palace. And Esther says in verse 16, she says, when this is done, when, when this fast is done, I will go to the king even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. It's as she comes to terms with the fact that she may lose her status in the palace that she actually lives into the power of her position. She owns her identity in God, and she realizes that it's far more important than any identity bestowed on her by an earthly king. You see, when we own our identity as children of God, we begin to see our resources, our, our jobs, our bodies, our money, not as things that make us more than what we are, but as God-given gifts to be used for the benefit of others. And we see our relationships as opportunities to serve God and to serve others. It's by using our resources for God that we're able to be part of something bigger than ourselves, to be part of God's great story of redemption and restoration of the world. But if we try to hide behind them, they will ultimately destroy us. Now, Esther wasn't perfect. Before making this courageous decision, she had broken many laws in the Mosaic Covenant. She had sex before she was married. She married someone outside of the Jewish faith. She ate food she wasn't supposed to eat. She had made compromises. And we've already seen how, you know, she didn't earn her position. She kind of lucked out in getting that role in the palace, or really it was God working behind the scenes, but it wasn't by her own merit. But we're seeing that it wasn't too late for God to use her. So I don't know if anyone feels like it might be too late for God to use you. Maybe you've had some compromises. Maybe you've kind of just gone along with what others have told you and that brought you somehow to where you are now. Maybe you've messed up in your past or maybe you're living in fear. But this story teaches us that it's not too late. God actually has been working in the midst of all that you've been going through, believe it or not, but it's not too late to align yourself with God's will. It's not too late to recognize God's grace in your life and submit to his kingship. It's not too late to take hold of your identity as a child of God. God has gifted you in specific ways and he's placed you where you are in certain situations and in certain relationships and he desires to display his power and glory through you. But this doesn't just happen by us saying, wow, Esther is such a great example. I want to be more like her. I'm so inspired. You know, I'm going to look at my resources and see how I can use them to help other people. I'm going to find ways to reach out to people in need. I'm going to stop being so nervous to share my faith. You see, if we just look at Esther as an example and we try to be like her, the orientation of our heart has not actually changed and our motivation for these things will pretty quickly fade. But Esther's more than an example. She's a signpost pointing to Jesus. 
Jesus is the one who didn't risk just losing an earthly position, but he left his heavenly throne. He didn't just risk his life, but he willingly gave it. He didn't just say, if I perish, I perish. He said, when I perish, I perish to save my people. He's not just an example. He's a savior. Like Esther, Jesus at first appears weak and unimportant. He was born in a stable, born in poverty, born the son of a carpenter in a small town. He died a criminal's death. He was buried in a borrowed grave. It's not what we'd expect of a savior. But for such a time as this, Jesus faced a defining moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he chose to align his will with the Father's in order to defeat the enemy of God's people for all time. And if we look not to Esther, but to Jesus, our hearts are changed and we have a deep and true and lasting motivation to serve and love and give because he took the death we deserved so that we could have the life he deserves. Because of Jesus, we, cannot, we can say not just, who knows, you know, maybe these things in life are the way they are for a reason, but we can say, I am certain. I am certain that as a child of God, as a member of God's people, God is working out his master plan of redemption through me, through us, which he already began in Jesus, and we get to engage in it. I want to submit to that king. I want to use what he's given me to bring glory to him. Tim Keller, late pastor in New York, he, he tells a story of someone in his congregation who came up to him after a service. He'd been, she had been attending for a little bit, and she said, you know, I'm not really a Christian, but I'm kind of intrigued with what's going on here. I'm intrigued by the Christian faith. And he asked her how she came to come to that church specifically, and she said, well, I learned about it through my boss, and she told a story of how uh, she made a, a big mistake at work, really big. It, it may have costed her her job. She was about ready to, you know, she was waiting for the ax to fall, but her boss ended up going in to the executives and, and taking the blame for her mistake. He completely took full responsibility and protected her from losing her job. And so she went into him, to his office afterwards, and said, why did, you, why did you do that? You know, I know you have clout here, but this definitely affected your reputation with your colleagues. Why did you do that? And at first he's kind of like, well, you know, not a big deal, and anyone would have done it. And she's like, no, I've worked for many people who have taken taken responsibility for the good things I've done, but I've never had anyone take the responsibility for the mistakes that I've made. Why did you do it? And he said, well, I don't like to talk about this much. I don't wear my faith on my sleeve, but I'm a Christian. And at the heart of my faith is Jesus, who took the fall for me. He gave his life for mine. And that's what enables me sometimes to take the fall for others. You know, he had come to the realization that what was more important than his reputation at work was who God says he is and his call to give as Jesus gave. 
to be part of God's work of deliverance. He was submitted to the right king. He was able to say, I'm certain that God is using this for his purposes. Esther does go on to petition King Xerxes. He accepts her and allows the edict, an edict to go out for the Jews to defend themselves against their enemies. Just one thing that we need to understand and we would see if we read through the book of Esther is that an edict that goes out in the king's name can't be revoked, so he couldn't just take back what Haman had already sent out. So a new edict is sent that allows the Jews to defend themselves against their enemies. And by another interesting happenstance that involves a bout of insomnia on the part of Xerxes, Mordecai is elevated to a prominent position in the palace, and Haman is killed in a really ironic way. Uh, and the other nationalities in Persia come to fear the Jews, and the Jews do strike down their enemies in the 12th month. And this story is full of irony and contrasts and reversals and things that we would not expect to happen, and we don't have time to dig into all that today, but I do encourage you, if you have a chance this week, to read through the story of Esther and find how God works in these incredible and, and yet sometimes ordinary ways. It's an amazing story of God's deliverance worked out through broken people and messy circumstances. So let's reflect a little bit on what we learn from the story of Esther. First, we see that God is present and active and gracious even when his people don't fully recognize it. You know, it's incredible to me that God doesn't just work kind of in spite of the messiness and brokenness. He doesn't just sort of work around it. He actually works through it. We see that here. We also see that despite past mistakes, it's never too late to align ourselves with God's plan and purposes. So don't just resign yourself, you know, to thinking, oh, I guess this is just the way life's gonna be. But look to God and ask what he wants to do in and through you. We can also learn that Jesus is a king worth submitting our lives to because he gave his life for us. Nothing and no one else gives us the confidence, the assurance, the peace, the life that God gives. And of course, we see that Esther was both a saint and a sinner, and so are we, so there's hope for us. Some questions, if these are helpful for you to reflect and respond, we've been asking each week, how, how do you see yourself in Esther? Also, is there anything holding you back from fully submitting to the kingship of Christ? You know, do you fear losing a certain position in your workplace, or do you fear losing a reputation among your friends or losing control or power over a certain aspect of your life. And finally, what are your spheres of influence? Where has God placed you and how has he uniquely equipped you to serve him there? The story is telling us that God has a reason. He is working behind the scenes, even if we can't see it. But let's look for him and, and align our hearts with his will. Let's pray.
God, we thank you that you are sovereign, that you are a good king who came down and gave your life for us. So God, we want to submit our lives to you. We thank you that you call us your children, and that is our identity. You have given us all of the honor and worth and purpose that we need in this life. So help us to look to you and surrender to you so that you will be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.